Hello and welcome to River Talk, where we sit down with some of the Rivertown area's most interesting and notable people. Today I am sitting down with Mr. Michael Boriskin, uh, the Artistic and Executive Director of Copeland House here in Cortland Manor, New York. Uh, Mr. Boriskin, thank you for sitting down with me. Well, thank you for being here and welcome to Aaron Copeland's longtime home. Wonderful. So uh, let's start off with talking a little bit about yourself. Uh, You have had a very long and distinguished career in the world of classical music. If you could just give me a brief overview of what brought you here to Copeland House and and some of the formative experiences you've had along the way. Wow. Well, we're starting with with a pretty wide-ranging question, and I appreciate that. Um, You know, I've had a, a kind of interesting and maybe unusually wide-ranging career. I was pretty focused early on already in in being in the music world. I started playing the piano when I was a young child, typical story of, of those of us who were attracted to musical instruments, but I took to it uh, pretty pretty quickly. And already by the time I was a young teenager, I was enrolled in the pre-college division at Juilliard, um, which right away suggests a certain uh, focus and and direction. And so, uh, you know, I knew already by that point that I was somehow going to be involved in music. And the piano was probably going to be at the center of that. And that's indeed what happened. I went on to the undergraduate division of Juilliard. You know, it was a pretty traditional conservatory grounding. But I do recall feeling that I never wanted to be just in quotes, just a concert pianist playing the same small repertory of works and touring for, you know, eight or nine months of the year. I love travel. Don't get me wrong. I love travel. I love hotel life and restaurants, and that's all cool. But I always was interested in wanting to bring people together and to be involved in larger projects and developing projects myself. And so throughout my life, in addition to all of the concerts and the recordings that I had been involved with and the educational activities that I was involved with and remain involved with, I was always interested in what else could be done? How could we build a community, whether it was for a specific project or something that was more ongoing? And um, that really has been pretty much the trajectory of my work. And, you know, fast forward to the end of the 20th century. That sounds like ages ago, and it makes me sound ancient. But this really extraordinary undertaking here after Copeland died in 1990 to preserve his home from being sold and to put it into the service of American music, which is the way he lived his life, was 
really a unique undertaking. Uh, I wasn't here at the very start. For that, I am always happy to salute the grassroots movement of local Cortland Manor residents and to the Cortland Town Board and to the longtime, really visionary supervisor, Linda Puglisi, for creating the roots for saving this place on which we could build, which is what we've been doing for over 20 years now. During your career, uh, you worked with and crossed paths with uh, many interesting people, uh, including uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov. And one of those connections is what got you involved in Copeland House to begin with. That's correct. Uh, I was working on a project in Los Angeles, as it happens. And involved in that project was a really visionary arts executive And as that project was winding down, he said to me, you know, I live in the Hudson Valley also, and I'm involved with this project trying to save Aaron Copeland's house. And so as we're finishing this project here in in Los Angeles, your project here in Los Angeles, you come back home and and work with me on on helping to do something with Aaron Copeland's home. He made it sound, uh, you know, very casual. It was very informal. And uh, I said, sure, I'll be happy to help. And I was actually involved in a lot of other things, and it wasn't really front of mind for me. And he didn't let up. And uh, he indeed got me involved with it. Uh, He's a man named Grant Biglarian, who is no longer living, but uh, lived in Scarborough, a bit downriver from here. And as I say, he was a real real visionary. And in a certain sense, uh, he became my mentor as an executive rather than as a concert performer, because this was the kind of guy that could see around corners, the kind of guy who could really imagine things that other people couldn't. And his whole career was spent that way. And uh, I I always looked up to him then, and I think of him often. Uh, He was an extraordinary man, and he was one of the key people that that, that was involved in the early days predating me in preserving Copeland House. You know, you bring up the artistic side of things versus the executive side of things, and, and you learned a lot about the executive side of things uh, through this this gentleman who mentored you. But it seems like even before that, you were, of course, uh, first and foremost a musician, but also working on the logistics and the organization of things. It seems like the combination of the art side and the logistics side is something that comes pretty natural to you. Um Maybe, but it also takes a lot of work. In a real sense, when you are on a stage performing or presenting, you're selling. You're hopefully selling to a community. You're helping to build a community. Whether you're performing, you know, a big piano concerto by Beethoven or Brahms, or you're premiering a brand new piece that a young composer has just written. You are trying to put that across 
and project everything there is about the piece. You're trying to sell it. And Beethoven needs selling in a very different way than unknown composers do, past or present. But in a real sense, everything I do as an artist or as an executive feeds off of each other. And all of that is part of a whole in trying to make a case for something in the liveliest and in the most compelling way that that I can. You mentioned that you've been involved with Copeland House since the turn of the century. <laughs> that does, Thank you for that. That's that does great. make me feel uh, quite old <laughs> saying that. I was around at the turn of the century. Um, I was too. So obviously it was a great fit. You've been here for 20 plus years now. Uh, what was it about Copeland House that really made you think, this is a place that I'm going to be here for the long haul? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I, I felt like a kid in a candy store because we were building something from scratch. And this was a really unique undertaking to be creating something in the name of one of the iconic figures in American music. I mean, how often does that kind of an opportunity come along? I mean, the irony of it is that when my friend, my mentor, got me involved with this, you know, I thought I would come to a few meetings and give them some professional advice and, you know, help to steer them in the right direction. Because in those very, very early years of Copeland House, this was before it opened its doors to programs and operations in 1998. It's a couple of years before that. It was run by basically a volunteer steering committee of prominent individuals who were involved in American music. So I was honored to be involved in, uh, and to be asked to be part of that circle. And I thought, okay, I'll, uh, I'll come to a few meetings and I'll you know, give them a few ideas and then I'll be on my way back onto other projects. Didn't quite work out that way. Apparently not. Uh, I'm still here. <laughs> and the thing is that there is still so much more to be done as we continue to build and grow what is really a unique enterprise here. And that's really part of the fun of it. I mean, we're not just doing what they did 40 and 60 and 80 years ago uh, as one would if you were involved in a long established entity. And so, you know, we're still building and, you know, we've, we've got a pretty elevated mission of championing American music on stage, at school, in the studio. And there are so many aspects to that, and there's so much still to be done with that that, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine any of us here thinking, oh, well, our work's done and we can, you know, we can, we can move on. Sure. It, it certainly does sound like an exciting thing to be a part of, and, and I can definitely understand why you've been at it for as long as you have. Let's talk about Copeland House itself. Obviously, it was the home and uh, studio of the composer Aaron Copeland. He mentored many other musicians here as well. And you're sort of carrying on that legacy in your own way. But there's so much more 
to Copeland House and 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 what you guys do uh, today. Give us a little bit of information about the programs here, the mentorship that goes on here. Well, um, there's a lot, as you've said, that goes on right here, but so much of what we do also takes place off-site. We've often said that this is the only composer's home in the United States that is devoted to championing American composers and their work through this broad range of activities that you've alluded to. We have uh, our own touring resident chamber ensemble called Music from Copeland House, uh, which tours, which makes recordings. We now have our own record label here. And we have two main stage series. One is in Westchester, which is starting up again after after the COVID shutdown uh, at the Emelon Theater in Mamaroneck in early April. Uh, we have another main stage series in the city with the uh, Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We do a lot of work with the schools uh, because Copeland himself was all about education. And so we've undertaken a lot of educational initiatives uh, with schools, not only throughout Westchester and the region, but around the country, usually in connection with concerts that we're doing when we're traveling. And the other base, the other pillar of uh, our our programs involves, as you correctly said, supporting composers in a wide variety of ways. I mean, this was the thing that was really, really interesting about Copeland in that he was an extraordinary advocate of his fellow composers. And that notion really animates everything that happens here. As much as his artistic legacy, that notion of Copeland's that there was no such thing as a competitor or a rival, but just colleague, is really inspiring because that doesn't happen all that often. That's a a pretty big challenge, a personal challenge in a field of entertainment or arts which, when you think about it, can be pretty much of a, of a zero-sum game. If I'm a pianist and I recommend my friend, who is another pianist, for a gig, he's going to get the gig, and I'm not. And I think it really takes a certain kind of professional and personal generosity to be able to be that kind of an advocate and to not feel threatened by your colleagues. And Copeland was like that from the time he was already in his early 20s. He was producing concerts and presenting the work of of his contemporaries. This wasn't something that he developed much later in his career when he had the benefit of international celebrity and he could anoint young composers who were two generations younger than he was. I mean, he was doing this when he was in his 20s for his pals and even composers he didn't know who were also in their 20s. So that kind of professional generosity is something that really underpins everything that we do here. It really defines the value, the values in plural of of everything that animates Copeland House. Yeah, I mean, that it's a very unique environment for any artist to be in where the emphasis is not on 
competition and it's more on support and collaboration. Now, how do young composers get involved with Copeland House? Well, thank you for asking. We want everybody to be involved with with Copeland House because uh, as we continue to grow, as we were discussing before, uh, we we need all kinds of of, of assistance, uh, artistically, financially, certainly, uh, human resources. Um, all of that uh, is essential in, in helping to continue building this place. Uh, I would direct people, if I may, to our website, which is copelandhouse.org. And I guess I should say that there is no E in Copeland. C-O-P-L-A-N-D, copelandhouse.org. We are pretty well established on the radar of composers, um, around the country and around the world. And um, composers seem to know how to find us. Uh, we have highly competitive residency and mentoring programs here. And uh, we are literally swamped with applications uh, for a limited number of fellowships and residencies that we can offer. But we are, are trying to emerge from the pandemic shutdown. And as I said before, we uh, are starting up our concerts and we encourage people to come uh, to the Emelin Theater. Uh, we have uh, uh, one concert each in April, May, and June. And if one goes to the Emelin website, which is emelin.org, E-M-E-L-I-N. You will find information about our concerts. Our concerts, as you might imagine, exclusively champion American music, past and present. And so these concerts are unusual to begin with. Because of that, we really think with all of the, the investigative work that we've done, there really is not another concert series in the country that exclusively showcases past and present American music. And so, for example, our April 3rd concert includes a, a piece by a wonderful composer who unfortunately died very young in the last pandemic back in the early 20th century. And he was the first music director at the Hackley School in Tarrytown. This is a composer named Charles Griffiths, whose work is not nearly as well known as it should be. This is part of a program called Sounds of Westchester because the program is made up of works by Westchester natives or transplants. We have an extraordinary musical legacy here. We have a Juneteenth celebration on June 19th, which is at the other end of this series. We have in May a program that includes a world premiere as well as one of Leonard Bernstein's earliest uh, chamber works. We like to think of these programs as adventures, and uh, there are all kinds of discoveries uh, to be made and, uh, you know, new music, new and old music to, be, to, to become acquainted with. And so we encourage people to, to come to those concerts. Yeah, I mean, it must be a very exciting time. The world is starting to open up and you're able to get out in front of live audiences again. Uh, it, it, it must be a, a very good 
time to be a musician and be involved with Copeland House. We would like to think so. We started, gradually started uh, resuming our touring activities uh, this past fall, uh, as is the case with so many other endeavors in life and and work. Uh, It's been sporadic because of the constantly evolving conditions around us. But so much of what we do involves what we were talking about, building communities and public engagement, whether it's in the schools or on stage. And so, yes, we are thrilled to be getting getting back on stage and to be actually interacting with people. We've spent two years with virtual programming, and that was great because we could access a global, literally a global audience. But um, we, I think, prefer to be able to see the faces of people that uh, sure. that we're performing for. Yeah. I mean, you really can't beat just the energy of a of a live audience. No. And uh, there's there's no question about that. And so we're looking forward to, to that. We've got all kinds of, of big uh, expansion plans in, in the work, uh, structural expansion plans uh, in the works. Uh, if anybody knows of a large property for sale, please visit us. We want to know about it. I hope that's okay to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So finally, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, when, when looking through your resume, I saw that you were a bit of a broadcaster yourself. You hosted a radio program on NPR. That's true. Tell me a little bit about that, and uh, is this experience up to your standards of broadcasting? (laughs) It's a delight to talk to you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, again, that initiative with NPR was very much a part of what we've been talking about and part of my work, which is to champion music, whether it's old or new, whether it was made in America or not. That particular project was a program called Century View, which, as the program title might suggest, explored piano music of the last hundred years. It was a lot of fun going down to to Washington, to the old NPR headquarters down there, and, um, you know, putting a few shows in the can, as we say, and being home in time for dinner. That was the best of all. And, uh, I mean, it was a great experience. I certainly learned a lot about sitting behind a, a microphone sitting in front of a microphone, I should say. Um, so I guess I didn't learn quite quite as much as I thought. But it was, uh, it was great fun doing it. It was really nationally broadcast. It had, uh, you know, a, a, a listenership in, in, you know, in the millions. And this was a great opportunity. And we had great fun picking, you know, picking music. And again, introducing people to music and to composers that they might not have been familiar with. Well, Mr. Bereskin, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to help tell the story of Copeland House and to get you back behind or in front of the <laughs> microphone. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Glad, glad you could be here. And thank you for doing this.
River Talk is a production of River Towns Media, publishers of the River Journal and River Journal North. For more information, check out riverjournalonline.com slash rivertalk. Do you know someone from the area who would make a great guest on our show? Let us know at rivertalk at rivertownsmedia.com. River Talk is executive produced by Alan Begun and Bruce Apar of River Towns Media. I'm Christian Larson, and I'll see you next time.